0: What if it was destined? Wasn't it
1: always you and me? What if
0: it was destined? Welcome to season eight of the Life Giver Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Weathers. I'm a military spouse, clinician, and leadership coach. And Life Giver is where I get to spark honest conversations, interview experts, and encourage you with topics on military culture, marriage, and leadership. So give yourself permission to pause and lean in. There's something for everyone here. Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. I am so excited to bring my interview with Dr. Mike Seitzma um, to season eight. If you listened to the last episode, I interviewed Shanti Feldhan. Shanti and Dr. Mike have put out a book called The Secrets of Sex and Marriage Eight Surprises That Make All the Difference. And if you have listened to Life Giver for any period of time, you probably have heard Dr. Mike. He's a great friend and colleague. Um, And so I'm going to give you a little bit of information about Dr. Mike. Um, He is a licensed professional counselor, a certified sex therapist, an ordained minister, professor, and national speaker. He has a pastoral heart and gift in teaching and a passion for helping couples grow in marriage. Dr. Seitzma uses his uh, skills to teach couples important truths about marriage in a fun and interesting way, which of course you're going to hear in our interview together. He has over 30 years of clinical experience in sex therapy and is the founder of Building Intimate Marriages and co-founder of Sexual Wholeness. Um, So I'm so excited to share this interview with Dr. Mike, just a reminder that if you have little ears running around, please put headphones in or maybe wait until it's just you or even better you and your spouse before listening to this interview. So here's my interview with Dr. Mike. Welcome to the Life Giver podcast. I am so thrilled to have one of my favorite people, and I know yours back on the podcast. Dr. Mike Seitzma is with us. Um, I, you know, Dr. Mike, I'm working with a couple right now who um, found me, I think, by Googling, and then they listened to some of the podcast episodes and they were like, There's that Seitzma guy. <laughs> like, we listen to every every time you've interviewed him. Like, he has some great oh, stuff. That's and I'm like, sweet. Well, I'm glad to be, I'm glad to be working with you, but I wish I could get you into Seitzma. So um um, thank you for joining me again, um, Dr. Mike. Um, you have just come out with a fantastic book, and um, I just got off recording um, working with Shanti Felton, who you've co-authored this book with. So my husband, Matt and I, which you know, Matt, um, we were so excited when we saw that you guys were writing a book together. Shanti's um, other books have been um, some of our favorite books to recommend to couples on understanding their perspectives of how they communicate and loving each other and um, changing your thought patterns and how you approach relationships. And of course, you have joined me um, numerous times Um, but really specifically talking about um, everything from pornography to keeping our intimate life healthy. You and I have also talked about um, a fair recovery and how do you rebuild trust back. And and so now you've authored a book with Shanti called Secrets of Sex and Marriage, Eight Surprises that Make All the Difference. Um, And so first of all, thank you for being willing to do that. And I think um, to dive in, first of all, just thank you for joining me again. It's great to see you.
1: Oh, it's such an honor. This is so much fun. I appreciate being um asked to be back for sure.
0: Well, and you um you've made it your life to cover this topic. You know, I was thinking this morning like did you know, I think we kind of knew you at the beginning before this like blew up for you as a huge career, I think. And so I yes. kind of was thinking this morning like did you always know that you wanted to focus on sex and intimacy for couples or did it just kind of fall into place?
1: Uh, If anything, it would have been, I don't want to do this. (laughs) So uh, early on um, in working with addicts is predominantly what I did. And then in 90, uh, I started seeing sex addicts and it totally, um, totally blew me away in many respects because growing up in such a conservative background, I, I didn't, You know, we didn't talk openly about it Mm -hmm. and it wasn't a shame-based thing for me growing up, but we just didn't talk about it. Um, So then in the mid-90s, when I started to shift into working with couples and I began to hear the pain that they were experiencing in this arena, um, I had at least had my trial by fire when working with sex addicts um, in the subject. So um, I just pursued the training because... I've always known the answers are in Scripture someplace. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed help getting them out, so I kept going back and getting ongoing training. Um, regularly saying to God, "Can you not bring somebody else in to do this? You know, <laughs> can I go focus on something else?" And I kept hearing Him say, "No, nope, this is you know where I've called you." So now, um, you know, we started building our marriages in '98, and this is all I've done since then. Um, I've got about 2,400 hours of formal training in sex therapy under my belt. Now, just trying to lean just in and figure training, out
0: not counting just training.
1: Couples. Correct. That's just the sitting in training, learning, you know, how to do this work and what's working. And um, and then over 30,000 hours of working with couples. Um, so it's not what I chose. But. Um, in that I didn't pursue it, but the pain of people Mm -hmm. and knowing there are answers and we don't have to live in it is what kept drawing me into it today. It's only been the last few years that I've thought, I kind of like what I do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's a long time, but even the hard topics that are just really difficult and challenging, because you we're human too, right? As clinicians, right. we're human too, mm-hmm. and so most of the topics that um, people that we engage with are struggling with, um, if we've not struggled with it ourselves, like it's a common thing, and so they can tend to be really tough topics to address. And but there's something wonderful about stepping into someone's pain where they feel the most stuck. Where they feel the Correct. most like they don't know how to get out of that place and find a place of hope. And I know that's one of the things that really um, brings me a lot of joy is I would much rather walk with people in the darkest places of where they feel stuck and just bring them out right. to light a little bit um, than avoid those places altogether. I, maybe it just hurts my heart to see people in pain and feeling like there is no answer.
1: And and our sexuality is so central to um, who we are, to our hearts, that when we're hurting in that arena, it is a really traumatic hurt. Yeah. And when we're stuck in that arena, we're real stuck. It's hard to figure out how to get out. And we don't have to stay stuck and we don't have to stay hurting. Um, So there is a huge reward in watching light bulbs and watching people go, wait, what? (laughs) And and finding a different pathway and developing a vision that's really worth pursuing and very doable.
0: Well, I'm going to put in the sh- show notes the other um, links to the other interviews that we've done because there's a lot that we could cover. Um, like you said, you've done this for 30,000 hours or plus, right? <laughs> and so like, we only have like less than one hour together. So I will link your other interview interviews in the show notes. Um, today, we're going to talk a little bit more about what you and Shanti found in doing research. And I believe you spent over three years now, of course, you've spent your whole you know, career studying this, but specifically on the research with Shanti, really cracking the numbers on what, um, what couples are thinking and struggling with the most. And so (laughs) I think to start, um, is there anything that you would want to share about why you decided to jump in this research project, but also what was the, was there anything that stood out to you that was surprising or did you hear all of this and you were like, Nope, this is what I've been seeing for my whole career. (laughs)
1: Um Shanti likes to, to laugh that there were no surprises for me in this uh, research in the literature. And in some respects, that's true. Um, the direction didn't surprise me. The details often did or how extreme mm-hmm. an impact was was surprising to me. And then one that I like to point out, we really expected that um, the more kids you had, the less frequent sex would be. And so when the data came back totally reversed, I looked at it and went, oh, I did something wrong. And I ran it several more times. I went all the way back to the beginning of the original data, crunched it all back through, and it came out the same. And then I went and looked at the other studies that we had, all of them came back the same. And those couples that um, had no kids were far more likely to be sexless um, and rarely had sex daily or more. Those couples that had three or more kids had a much higher frequency of sex daily or more, which totally, I mean, like, Seriously, how do you fit that in? Um, and had almost no had almost none of those couples were sexless. And that was a surprise.
0: So I have a question yeah. about that. Is that because they were more likely to be more sexual anyways, which is why they have so many children? <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. or what do you think?
1: I you know, the data doesn't tell us because we didn't ask those <laughs> questions. Um that is that was one of my thoughts. But honestly, Corey, I think what it is is um couples have more kids likely have a different value in yeah. terms of family, in terms of marriage, in terms of sexuality. Um, so I'm guessing that's I'm guessing both of those numbers are reflective of a um of a different value system that they're holding. Um yeah. That's my guess, but it could be as simple as they're having, they have more sex, and therefore they have more kids. So we, well, we don't I, know. But that was I a think surprise. It
0: also, is a very important point for those that do have children that look at couples that are childless that don't have kids, thinking that they must have this ideal world. They have all the time that they want, Correct. all the time that they need, um, and so surely they're not struggling. Um, I think it validates both sides.
1: Right. It was very encouraging for those couples that set across to me as newlyweds and say we're not sure we want to have kids because we don't want to mess up that part of our relationship. To be able to say, well, actually, the numbers are showing that it probably is better. Um, interesting. So mm-hmm.
0: that's a new one for me. So that's Th- that
1: was a surprise. <laughs>
0: um, okay. So um, I think one of the things that I wanted to ask you is you get into. Um, what you guys described. Now, I have heard you in other interviews talk about Um, the spouse that has a higher um, desire or drive versus one with, a—I think you called it a low drive. And now we're changing Mm -hmm. a little bit in the book where you talk about um, being um, a receptive desire person. And so can you walk us through, before I hit record, you had shared that for a long time you had used drive and now you're changing that a little bit. So walk us through what you, the language you used to use and how this research um, reshaped that.
1: So all the way back in my dissertation, my um, in 2004 is when I completed that research and that work. uh, It was on sexual desire discrepancy in married couples. So we were looking at high drive, low drive individuals. And at that time, you know. 20 years ago, uh, I used the drive language, even then talking about initiating uh, desire and receptive desire. Uh, Often we'll use the drive desire almost synonymously. And yet in the field, they do mean different things. And actually drive is going to probably be more synonymous with an initiating desire. So stepping back from talking about drive, because not everybody experiences what they think of as a drive, mm-hmm. um, that they're not, you know, in the book, I talked about initiating desire as being the car in drive, even though if your uh, foot is not on the gas pedal, it's kind of inching forward, it's being drawn forward. Um, and that's more of a drive. And to talk about a receptive drive just doesn't it doesn't resonate as well. So shifting both of those to being desire. Uh, what do I want in this versus what am I being pushed toward or driven towards? An initiating desire is going to have more of an experience of, of drive. The receptive person rarely um, will they experience that kind of drive. Now, they may at times. Um, uh a uh, female may experience drive at certain times in her cycle or when um, when her husband is being just an amazing dad. Or, uh, you know, the couple may talk about when we're away on vacation, that the drive seems higher. And that's more of that initiating kind of, and that language would fit there. But yeah, having shifted to the initiating and receptive, and it's probably worth mentioning that many in the sex therapy field talk about a spontaneous desire in place of the initiating desire. Um, So if people are reading and they hear spontaneous desire, uh, that's what I call initiating desire. I don't care for the term spontaneous because I don't think anything in our sexuality is spontaneous. Something has sparked it, whether that be our own physiology or something external. Um, And that is true for both an initiating and receptive so I prefer the initiating desire. But all of that just comes down to semantics. And the key is for couples to lean in and explore their own with each other. And you know, what is it like for you? What is it like for me? And they don't have to know coming out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And, as they sort it out with each other and talk about it and explore it, and it can change at various times. you know, kids come along, it changes um if we're starting a new job, it changes. lots of things can adjust the type of desire that we have too
0: well, and you also bring up a third desire, which I think you called resistant, and I think that's important Correct. to note too, because do you find that people with the initiating desire who are maybe married to a spouse with the receptive? Do you Uh feel like sometimes which is the most common pattern? Okay. And do you feel like they misinterpret sometimes and view them as resistant when actually they're receptive?
1: Correct. And oftentimes the receptive spouse will wonder if they're resistant Mm -hmm. because they don't have the initiating kind of desire. They view desire as black and white. It's either on and I'm pushing forward or it's off and helping them to explore um, no, it takes something a little more to get me in the mood than it does you, but the, the parking brakes not on. I'm not in reverse, but there mm-hmm. are those that the parking brake is on. They're in reverse. They're, they're continually moving away from anything that might be sexual. And those are the resistant desire.
0: But you found a very small percentage were actually resistant.
1: Very small Yep. Yeah. Um, I, is, I don't remember the numbers, but it was single digits.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, b- I believe it was single digits as well. And so I think that's important for people to hear. Um, it seems like so much of this book is about rewiring our thinking about ourselves and rewiring our thinking about our spouse. Uh, and of course, one of my favorites that um, we I, sh- I talked a little bit with Shanti about, but I think that is threaded throughout the book is just how much how similar couples are, and they're and their right. desire for frequency in the things that they want to change in their relationship. And yet I'm sure couples come to your office all the time thinking that there's so much discrepancy. And it sounds like what you're saying is most of the time spouses are wanting the same thing.
1: Um, Not r- exactly the same thing. Only about 22% of couples w- would say that they're wanting the same thing, but they're really close to each other. Most of yeah. them are only kind of one step away from each other and they feel like they are further apart because they kind of catastrophize, they polarize, you know, the, the stereotypical is a couple coming into the office and she says, he never wants to have sex with me. And he's like, yes, I do. You know, I'd like to, to, I'd like to have sex one to two times a week. And she's like, no, you don't. And he says like, you want it all the time. And she's, no, I don't. And, and, Because of the battling, they've really moved into opposite corners and they're so far apart. And yeah, the book is for me, the book is about opening up opportunities, opening up potential, helping couples to get curious with each other that wait, This you don't have to be exactly like me to be right, but your your right is different than mine. So if I'm asking you to be just like me, this isn't going to work. So I need to flip the script on this and be very open, lean in and, and get curious about who you are and let you be curious about me so we can find, oh, wow, we're really not that far apart, are we?
0: Which curiosity is a huge um, character, if you will, in this book, but so, so Uh crucial. Um, Before we get there, though, you, you brought up the word battle and it made me think about, um, maybe this is really important for us to talk about, and that is, Um, how destructive battling in this particular area can be to your marriage. And so could you take a moment and talk about, obviously by the time couples are coming to see you in your office, there's a lot of battling that has happened. There's perhaps a lot of wounding and I'm not necessarily talking about controlling or traumatic, um, wounding or, um, Or even infidelity, really, but just the wounding (laughs) of disagreement that can happen um, in this area. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what you see and, you know, is there something that you share with couples who've battled for a really long time to help them start to repair and start to take this on a different trajectory?
1: So, you know, John Gottman talked about differing types of couples, the the volatile couple, the um, um, oh, I'm going to forget the, the titles of them, but, you know, a volatile couple, they step in, they are both very passionate individuals. And if they start fighting about sex, they're going to do so passionately. Mm-hmm. So they're going to attack one another with it and they'll do damage with the, the harsh words that they'll say. And then they pull away from it. Couples that are um, more peacemakers or. They really don't like to battle. Um, many times they have a really good, healthy marriage relationship. Um, they parent well. They, they manage finances pretty well. Um, they don't fight about the, the in-laws very much. But this arena it causes conflict for them. So as they start to talk about it, it begins to escalate. They start feeling wounding Mm. and like I'm wounding my spouse and I'm being wounded. So they step away from it and they don't talk about it for three more months, but because they were just fighting about sex, it's a little bit tougher for them to come together. So the frequency takes a quarter notch down. Mm. And then three months later they come in and they start to work on it and talk about it and it escalates and they back away from it and they don't talk about it for four months. And now it takes another quarter step down and it doesn't take very long before Um, they're moving into a sexless couple. They're really both uh, developing some deep underlying resentments that start to generalize and get toxic to the rest of the relationship um, and begin to wound the rest of it, even though the core of it started with something as quote-unquote simple as disagreeing over frequency or disagreeing over who wants what. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the invitation is... To step back and begin to try to be curious about each other. Um, And, you know, I I point that out in the office often when I'll, I'll, I'll catch somebody being curious and I'll pause them and say right there, that that's curious. How can you foster that more in your relationship and lean in and start to explore and find that middle ground? Many couples do need an arbiter, though. They need somebody that can step in and um, and help to contain the relationship and keep them at the table. I tell the couples that come in to see me, I don't know what's right for you guys. I'm not that smart. I'm, I, I can't know enough to know how to help you to be um, what you need to be, but i I can sit here, absorb a lot of energy, and keep you at the table and mm. help help you to, to be curious with each other and point out when you're starting to demand instead of be curious. And really, that's my greatest role. And many times, couples will need somebody that just keeps them at the table, who doesn't have an opinion on how frequently they should have sex, who doesn't have an free, uh, opinion on what positions they should have sex in, has an opinion on, you guys can do this. This, if you lean in and stay at the table and deeply care for and are curious about each other. And that that's tough to do because this is so central to who we are.
0: That is um, an interesting point. I think that there's a lot of, or do you think that there's a lot of people that avoid going, getting help in this area because they're afraid they're going to walk in and there's going to be this um almost prescription of this is what right. you should be doing and then especially for that receptive spouse or especially for somebody who is you know the one that has mm-hmm. been avoiding that for whatever reason is going to feel shame or whatever and so maybe they avoid going in and getting help right
1: no i think that's very true and unfortunately many therapists will take that approach and you know it's it's not particularly helpful because as you say it adds pressure to the relationship rather than um, stepping back and and creating more options, more opportunities. Um, And we live in a culture that seems to have a a pressure to it and an expectation. And so we expect the experts to have more of that. We live in a culture where sex is a need. And so we expect that the therapist is going to say, well, this is a need. You, You have to measure up. And I think that's a legitimate grounds for avoiding. Um, and if it's if it is happening, you find somebody that's doing that type of, of work, d- inviting them to take a different approach or yeah. finding somebody else. Yeah.
0: Yes, and I, I tell people that all the time like we can't adjust if you don't let us know what we need to right. adjust around, right? Mm -hmm. You brought up, um, sex as a need. So I want to read this, um, section of your book. Um, it's actually under point eight, where we may deeply long for sex, but we don't quote need sex. And you write, this book emphasizes the deep importance of sex for us in our marriages, but a common message in our culture and Christian circles pushes past importance and calls sex a need. I, Michael, believe we must shift away from that teaching. Can Correct. you talk about that? Cause I think that's <laughs> huge because even in the counseling world, we talk a lot about, well, uh, I mean, I've even said it a million times and I think that maybe there's a right placement for it, but we often get caught up in the phrase, we'll ask for what you need. And then when you're talking mm-hmm. about marriage work, it's like understanding what your spouse needs and are you willing somebody who can address what their needs are and are, can you honor what your needs are? And so we get into this need right. conversation And I think you're hinting at, you're actually not hinting, you talk about it, but you get at this, like, what does that do in the dynamics of the relationship when we um, apply need to sex?
1: You know, some of it is semantics. And yet I think it's semantics that in this arena are worth us really um, talking about and nailing down because when we start to talk about sex as a need and we begin to elevate it to i have to have it that something bad is going to go wrong if i don't have it 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 um it has some really corrosive effects and you may need to stop me because this is a soapbox and i could talk for quite a while about it but um <laughs> So when we say let's take a stereotypical uh, couple where the husband, you know, 52 percent of the time, 54 percent, the husband was the initiating um, desire spouse with a higher um, with a higher state of desire. So. Um, So if we take that and the wife is receptive, if we take that type of a couple and we say sex is a need, well, we're thinking sex is a need for him because he's asking for it more. And because he needs it more, it has to be a part of the relationship. And I think we're doing several very destructive, um, unintended effects there. One is we're saying to him, this is a need. You have to have it. And therefore, you're going to need to find it someplace. And if it's not happening as you need it in your relationship, well, we understand that you're stepping out. We understand that you're turning to porn. We understand that you're turning to self-stimulation. We understand that you're attracted to somebody else. You need this. You know, if there's not food at home, we understand somebody going to get it someplace else because we need food. Um, and we're also kind of saying to these men and women, when it's them, um, you you can't really control this desire. Mm. You need it. Um, so we totally understand when it's unbridled, when it's unbounded, because it's a need. You know, I, I need air. You start to stop me from having air and you expect me to fight. You expect me to to um, To go beyond what I would normally do to get it, and we kind of almost set that up with sex when we say it's a need. Um, you are a holy warrior of God. Um, you and your buddies can, you know, go up against the gates of hell except your sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. You need that, so we understand that you don't discipline that. It's a need, and mm-hmm. I think that's hugely demeaning to a hired desire individual. To say, well, yeah, we understand. Um, It's okay if you sin in that area because it is a need. But then the flip side of it is there. The lower desire individual, now it's not really about what they need, Mm -hmm. not really about what they desire because their higher desire spouse has a need. And all of a sudden we put the lower desire spouse in a position of your primary role is meeting your spouse's need because they Mm -hmm. need it. Something's going to dry up and fall off. Something's going to explode if you don't, you know, if you don't have sex with them. And to me, that's horribly demeaning to the lower desire spouse. You know, I have a guy said, I had a guy sit in my office and his wife is saying, I really need sex three times a day and he's not doing this. And he looked at me and he says, you got to help me, doc. My body just doesn't work that way. (laughs) I, I can't perform like that. And she gets all bent out of shape when I don't. And she was using that need language and it put him in an owing type of a position because he was buying into the belief that it is a need for her. And I think that's so destructive for both of them versus stepping back and her exploring why did she desire it three times a day why why was that so important to her that's meaningful i'm not going to tell her that's unhealthy or wrong we need to understand what's going on and then helping her to see he really did love her and he desired her but wow that type of a level she just couldn't or he couldn't meet and it was too easy for him to just walk off the field rather than even try to play the game. Mm -hmm. And now we're back into polarizing, even further apart, removing the need language, allowed them to talk about what their heart's desires were Mm -hmm. and what they really wanted from, um, from each other and why, and that shift in language allows them to start to find that middle ground again. And, and honestly, to move back to being curious rather than trying to, to manage the pressure that the, that the concept of need puts into the mix.
0: Can you share um, how you shifted that language or what you saw from couples who were able to shift? Like what, (laughs) what their, what was their language change or what was the dynamics that changed from there? Um, maybe give listeners a little bit more of like, okay, I'm tracking that and see how that can be destructive to, um, to be in that spiral or that insanity cycle of need, but how do I get out of that?
1: You know, um, sometimes when interns are sitting in my office and they'll say, how did you do that? And and you just say the art of therapy, you know, that (laughs) that's tough to teach because it's going to be a bit dependent on the individual, a bit dependent on the relationship. You know, there's a lot that comes into play with it. But, um, when somebody uses the language of need, I, I store it until they're done, you know, kind of sorting through the point that they're trying to make. But then I'll come back and, and I always try to model what I'm teaching. So I try to model curiosity. Help me to understand your use of that word. Mm-hmm. Now, why do you think you need sex? Mm-hmm. Well, because I do. Uh, okay. I'm not denying that, but help me to understand why you feel like you do. And what, well, Do you really need it like you need food? Do you really need it like you need sleep? You know, those are needs for us. I think we need affirmation. I do think, you know, we we see in studies of failure to thrive and, you know, what goes on in uh, relationships where there's not an attentiveness to each other. I think that is more of a need. But what happens if you go without sex? you know, and, and help them to begin to unpack. And generally they'll go, okay, well, maybe it's not a need. Well, but let's explore then what happens when you put it in that category. Mm -hmm. And so trying to stay curious and then helping them to understand and discover for themselves. And, you know, that's part of what a couple could do with each other. So I'm wondering, is it really, you know, and why do you think, and why do I have to come up to that level? What, what happens if we don't? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, he's grumpy and irritable. Okay. He probably is. But that doesn't mean he needs it. He needs to learn how to manage grumpy and irritable. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's not very seductive, you know, right. and well, who wants yeah. to show up to that?
0: Well, and that also brings up kind of like a follow-up question that maybe sounds the same, but it's something that I'm seeing um, with a lot of the couples that I'm working with and actually not just couples. I'm seeing it in parenting. I'm seeing it in work in workplace environments. But there's something about all of us that, especially I think if you have higher um, empathy, harmony type of strengths, where you typically are really thinking and caring about what everybody else is feeling. Um, mm-hmm. I see a lot of people get into a place um, where they're managing other people, um, managing right. their mood, right? And so, I guess the easy way to describe it is if you, let's say, your spouse comes home and they are grumpy and irritable, like you just gave the example, grumpy, mm-hmm. grumpy and irritable. Um, The other person can sometimes, and we all have our own cycles and insanity cycles of how we like feed Mm -hmm. into that for each other. But if you are uncomfortable with the fact that they're grumpy and irritable and to get them ungrumpy and unirritable, less irritable is to let's say, well, he's saying that he needs sex or he's saying that he wants whatever, fill in the blank. And so I think we can get into a place in relationships both ways where we are managing each other's emotions or moods for our own sake of peace or our own sake of feeling like um, there's no conflict or whatever is happening. And so we end up managing a lot of people so that we feel better rather than sitting in this place where – It's a little messy and it may feel like conflict, but there's a line somewhere in there where we want to be attentive to our spouse and we want to care about the things that are important to them, but also know that they can have those feelings and may in some areas, just like we do, might need to work on self-control or work on their feelings or just have the permission to have a feeling.
1: Very much so. Um, and I think you've tapped into um, part of what's critical in it is if I feel like I need to do this, I have to do this, this is the only way I can help you to be centered, then then sex is being used in a way that's unhealthy. Uh, mm-hmm. But the same with you know, the, the spouse who comes home and it's been just a really bad day and they say, I need sex. Well, Okay, now you're using it like a drug, Mm -hmm. now, and it is soothing. We learn that when we're children, especially as as um, young boys, we learn that sexual touch is soothing. And you know, much of the many of the sex addicts that I work with, they're just self soothing in a way that's very powerful. But if somebody comes home and says, "You need to soothe me." That's not healthy. That's putting everything in in the wrong kind of place versus coming home and saying, it's been a really bad day, I'm kind of grumpy, and I I need to go for a walk or I need to just spend some alone time or you know, this is what I need to do to reset. Now, if the spouse at that point gets a twinkle in their eye and goes, yeah, I know how to reset that button. Mm -hmm. I've got the power to do that. Now they're stepping in saying, I'm going to give you ammunition to use against this battle that you've got. And I choose to give it. And I love that I've got the power to give it and I'm going to have fun with it. I'm doing this for me and for you. That's a whole different mindset. And, And now we're tapping into the power that sex has, but in a healthy way versus in a drug seeking or i have to manage you through my body that that little shift is so massive and whether it's healing or whether it's destructive
0: well and it sounds like if if one person is trying to manage the other person they're abandoning themselves Right? right. Like, I think you also talk about in the book, if we're abandoning ourselves and we are doing this for the other person, especially if you're one of those receptive desire spouses, where it might take a little bit more work for you to feel that sense of desire. And now we're just trying to appease the other person. Uh-huh. You're actually abandoning yourself and missing out on something that's equally important and built for you as well.
1: And it eventually is very destructive to the relationship itself. Um You know, Cliff Penner, one of the the top leaders in our field says the greatest turn on to most men is a turned on woman. And yet for many of these receptive wives, I look at them and say, well, what do you like sexually? And they look at me and go, I don't know. And they truly Mm -hmm. don't know. And I'm so sad because Mm -hmm. they spend all of their time being a receptive individual, trying to please the other. And over time, her husband looks and he says, but you're not enjoying this. I'm no longer enjoying it. And mm-hmm. she can't do it good enough any longer because mm-hmm. she's never stepped in to figure out what does she want and, and how does she like it to be and what, and, and then to teach him and they co-create this together. Yeah. Um, this is
0: a very important topic, um, Dr. Mike, because I see in the military space, I mean, I'm not sure anymore what's happening in the civilian world, <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine there's a lot, a lot of commonalities, but in the military space, you know we live this lifestyle where um you know I thought at first that it was just the spouses that were struggling with what they what they themselves needed, simply uh-huh. because we are taught to revolve around the military. The mission comes first, um kids come first, like everything in the world comes first before um, right. the spouse at home is willing to take a look, and so I actually spent two years or more going around and and asking spouses in different groups like I would ask them if you had three hours right now with no responsibilities, what would you do with your time? And the first answers I get is a nap and a sandwich, right? A nap (laughs) and a (laughs) sleep and a sandwich because I don't have to count the carbs in the bread. Like if it doesn't count, like I want a nap and a sandwich. And I, that's usually Uh for a spa day, like the cliche answer. But then I would say like after you had those though, and then you had time left over, what would you do? And across the board, Everyone would give me blank stares. Everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I started taking this to service members too um, to see do they tend to lean? And I think our culture tends to habitually train us to become more and more passive. I mean, oh my goodness, even when we were at Leavenworth at this school for a year, it was not even like Matt could deploy. I was like shocked and so were the rest of the spouses to have somebody in leadership actually say, you know what the best thing that you can do for your soldier when they come home from a long day of studying, take off their backpack and give them a whiskey. Like, and I was like, Uh oh my goodness, like how much, and as as sweet as that sounds, you have these weary spouses that are like, I've been wrestling with these children all day and now he's going to go sit down and (laughs) drink a whiskey, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so we were all floored. My point here is, I saw it in the service member population too, is that in some ways, um, when it comes to leading up, they would be passive, right? Because we have a hierarchy, Mm -hmm. a system of hierarchy. So it's very hard to be assertive up. And of course, not knowing how to be assertive, when they would lead down, they would become aggressive because they don't know what else to do, but either passive or aggressive. And so my point here to all of this is, you find people who don't know how to identify what they need. And if you have women in particular who also have not been in their own skin for a very long time, right. and now you are encouraging them, hey, let's pause and let's actually think about what do you need because you hold a key to passion, right. you hold a key to Um, Joy in this area, this intimacy in your life and your spouse will also be more filled with joy too. I imagine there is a like record scratch or slam the brakes (laughs) or something that happens there of, of two things. One, um, the realization that I don't know what I need, but also two, an immediate like wash of shame and pressure that comes with that. Exactly. What's your thoughts on that?
1: (laughs) I love the the language and I I often have to um, unpack it for people, but I love to ask the question that is very similar to what you asked, but moving it into the sexual realm of what's seductive to you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I ask most husbands, if your wife wants to seduce you, what does she need to do? And most husbands are immediately aware of what turns them on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I look at wives and I say, what's seductive to you? And most wives don't have a clue. Mm. They're not aware of what draws them into a space that I want to engage with my my husband, because I I step into that space because I have to, because he said it's because it's been three days, because all of these reasons and they don't know what really touches their heart and to get them to unpack what touches their heart. And, well, when he's a really good dad, wow that's sexy, that's seductive. But then he starts to touch and that it's no longer seductive because Mm -hmm. the pressure stepped back in. Now I Mm -hmm. have to perform again. Mm -hmm. Well, but what would you like? Let's shift that narrative again to what would feel good to you? What would continue to draw you into that space that you're wanting to connect? Back when you were dating, you knew how to do that. You know, you knew how to grow step into that space and he knew how to draw you and you knew how to draw him how do we get back and do that today and it's a reverse for um, couples where she's the higher desire spouse and he's the the lower many times it's helping him to learn what's seductive and then accept influence from each other and often uh, the most common thing i'll hear from those men is when she affirms me and what's going on is he feels so criticized throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And the last thing he wants to do is get naked with her and feel criticized. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to, to say when she's affirming and drawing me in my desire lights up, it's easier. Um, And so it's just helping them to, to sort through what draws me into that space. Uh, Again, it's not my job to make my spouse get there. But it's helpful for me to know what's seductive, what's drawing to her versus what pushes her away. What what in the field we call the brakes and accelerators? You know, what accelerates this process for you and and what is like slamming on the emergency brake for you. That once I know, I can really help with.
0: Well, and I think what I'm also hearing you say is um again, going back to the curiosity, like asking Mm -hmm. those questions, being patient with your spouse, if they don't know what they need. Right. And Mm -hmm. that those things can change. Or, or I also heard you give the example of, you know, let's say a spouse does say, this is what, um, this is what I think I would like. And then the pressure comes in and she shuts down, right. Pausing there with curiosity instead of hearing it as inadequacy or something like
1: that. Which means whoever is throwing down the brakes has to be aware that wait, I just I just hit the brakes, I tap the brakes. What is going on for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and can I create enough space in this moment that I can say, wait, hang on, something's happening. I need to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And when we pause that our spouse doesn't get all bent out of shape and act like a nine-year-old little spoiled kid, which is definitely not sexy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) doesn't make me want to continue to engage with you. And but then I can figure out, oh, this is what's happening. And maybe not and talk about it in the moment. Maybe later over a cup of coffee, we can say, so let's unpack what happened, um, but be more aware of what we need and and, or. there, I do think it is need what we desire in drawing us to each other.
0: There's a it's kind of going along with what we're saying. There's this great part um, in the book where um, I love the way that you worded this, and, and I know we've talked a lot about stereotypes today. And the book does mm-hmm. such a great job that if you are, um, I think it was twenty um, something percent, twenty four percent, maybe, of spouses are the yep. ones with the higher drive. Right Where the um, wife is, yes, the wife is, yes, and mm-hmm. then, um, so if you do not fit within some of the categories that we have talked today or within the stereotypes, I highly encourage you to pick up the book because they do a great job of making everybody feel seen um and and you will find yourself throughout the pages of this book, um no question, Thank you. but there's mm-hmm. this one place where you're kind of um I think expanding a little bit more on what what we've been talking about here, and really, this is where you um help women, especially understand men and the way that they feel connected, usually after sex. And so there's this part where you say, um, it's, you're talking about this female client and she says, what is with men and sex? One female married client asked me, Michael, no matter what's going on, it's like the cure for everything. He's depressed. I have sex with him. He's fine. Angry with the kids. I have sex with him. He's fine. Bad day at work, sex. He's fine. I respect I, Mike, responded with, listen, you are never responsible for changing him with your body or otherwise, but it sounds like you're realizing that you actually have great power in his life. You're really realizing that if you want to, you can press the reset button on your husband anytime. And then you go on on the next page to say... Um a second key truth is that sex likely helps your man feel close to you. If he feels disconnected from you, if he senses distance during the day, he may reach out to you for a se- for re- reach out to you sexually to address that discomfort. You may think it is crazy that he wants sex when you're at odds and not realize that he's reaching out to you because you are at odds. Can you right. share a little bit more on that because I think that's really powerful and it's one of those stereotypes that I think we both hear a a lot is just this misunderstanding of why we're coming to sex and they're Let's just call it out also for what it is, Dr. Mike, is that there are these just demons that can enter into this area of people's lives and whisper Mm -hmm. things and twist things. And it's amazing how one person can try to speak truth and it gets twisted by the time it gets to the other person's ears. And we're totally mishearing each other and misunderstanding each other. So can you, if you'd like to, would you like to unpack that a little bit and what you see with understanding men in particular?
1: Definitely. Let me first start by saying, I think that the polarization that you just described and the, the hurt and the woundedness is a part of who we are um, as humans, especially in our fallen state. Um, you know, the story of Adam and Eve reflects that the moment they saw they were naked, they judged themselves as not OK and they hid mm-hmm. their sexuality from each other. Um, the scripture uses the word apron. They made aprons um, to hide from each other. And that comes out of some sense of, of shame or needing to hide um, from our spouse. And so I think the wait you don't want to engage with me in the most intimate way that we see that is then you don't accept a core part of me. There's something wrong. I think that is a normal response, but it's not a helpful response. Mm-hmm. It doesn't allow us to move forward. And when our spouse reaches out and wants to engage, many times it is that reparative kind of effect. Sometimes it is the the soothing that sex really does soothe us. That type of touch is a powerful kind of touch. But. You know, we know that when a guy has an orgasm with his partner, that oxytocin for most of them is going to go up 500 to 600 percent and stay high for about five to 30 minutes afterwards. And oxytocin, we know there's been a lot written on it in the past few years, is that connecting bonding chemical that Uh, is present when a mom is breastfeeding her child. And so a guy knows all we have to do is have sex. And if I have an orgasm with you, I am 120% connected to you. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's done. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not true for all men. You know, Mm -hmm. if she's hypercritical or if he's hypercritical of self or that can disrupt that process, there are people that we know oxytocin is actually counterproductive for them because of what they associate it with. Um, But for most people, that is a connecting. And yes, to say, I have to do this for him or for her, but to stick with men, I have to do this for him so he can reset and he can feel connected. That's icky. That, you know, Mm -hmm. that's getting the responsibilities in the wrong place, Mm -hmm. but to to go, okay, he's feeling really disconnected to me. Can Mm -hmm. I authentically show up in this space and get what I desire as well? Mm-hmm. I'm getting the full focus of his attention. Mm-hmm. I'm getting him being tender and caring to me. I'm getting him wanting to connect in an intimate, profound way with me. And I like that. I like the connection that comes from it. He gets kind of reset. This is good for both of us. And we mm-hmm. we like each other when we're done. That's probably a good reason to step in. Um, and it can get easily off track. But we have this cultural message again. It goes back to the need that we started with. If it's that he needs it, then we're back into something that's really not as healthy because we think he needs it because he's horny. Mm -hmm. He needs a place to release into that he doesn't feel bad about. And Mm -hmm. yay, I'm that. Well, Mm -hmm. that's not good. Mm -hmm. Who can feel good about being the receptacle of his need? Mm -hmm. Um, versus, wow, he deeply desires to connect with me, to feel like we are one that I love him and want to be with him. That's a very different mindset stepping into it and gives us a very different um, outcome uh, to the process. As we understand, there are different motivations going on here and it could be really good.
0: So, so powerful. And I, I could spend another two or three hours with you, <laughs> and we're about out of time. Um, and so, first of all, I mean, I guess I just want to ask one more question and then we'll kind of wrap up. Um, do you have time for one last question? Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, I think, and this is just kind of a high level, you know, given the work that you've done on this book and the work that you're working on with couples, I don't know if you ever noticed that there's like, trends or themes and that are happening, you know, each year or just during different seasons, what would you say has been on your heart recently about, um, the couples that you're working with or the conversations that you're having? Is there something in particular that's coming up? That's just really been on your heart, um, more Mm -hmm. season to talk about or share.
1: Um, well, that's a good question. I, I, I do think what I'm seeing, and it was reflected in the the research that helped to illustrate, um, is the high number of sexless couples. Um, you know, we did this research in kind of a coming. Uh, the questions were asked in coming out of COVID world, and there's been um, plenty of other research that has shown the same numbers that COVID was not kind to. Um, marital sex that the numbers can go anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of couples being sexless depending on the the research study and i'm watching these couples in just an awful lot of pressure and pain because once we step into that realm it's really tough to get it started again it takes so much energy to get a sexual relationship healthy and and back on track and we have such financial pressures such information pressures you know there's there's so much chaos going on in the world that we can't manage and the just the internal anxiety and pressure and then we add something like that to it and my heart breaks for a lot of these couples um, because they just seemed totally overwhelmed personally as a family, their kids are overwhelmed and, in this arena, which could be really healing. You know, I, I talked about it being the oil in the relationship that keeps the friction from getting too hot. It could be something that really helps them to, to lean back and go, that was fun. I like being with you in this way. You know, that was 30 minutes of just drinking in and relaxing and resetting ourselves. And they don't allow themselves to because the pressure is there and I'm not going to perform well in that anyways. Mm -hmm. So that's been tough. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I do see that trend and I, I like working with couples to try to figure it out.
0: Yeah, and I, 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 you also mention in the book how oftentimes once you get going, your desire increases too, and yes. so you think that it's uh-huh. gonna always its just declining and gonna continue to decline. But your research has shown that actually, if you increase it, your desire increases as well. Um, Doctor, yep, not, not for
1: everybody. Not for everybody. everybody. It's not—it's not a you know—it's not a cure of if we just have sex every day, then we're gonna want sex every day. But um, it does really help.
0: I'm so glad you clarified that. Thank you, <laughs> Dr. Mike. Thank you so much for coming back. And, you know, I, th- I was thinking during our conversation, um, about the first question about, you know, the period of time where you were asking God, like, is this really what you want me to do? Uh-huh. And, um, you know, and I, I have to say, you know, you create and model for so many people, the safety that's required in this relationship. I mean, everything that I think you do and everything that you write about talks about the importance of creating a safe place where people mm-hmm. can be vulnerable and intimate and really be seen. And your everything from your voice to how you talk with people and giving people the language to um, to bring that safety back into their relationship. And you model it in your relationship and your clinical relationship with others as well. And so. I am just so grateful that you said yes to this career. I'm (laughs) so grateful for the way that you model that for people, the hope that you bring um, to people's lives. And I know that you are actively multiplying yourself and um, training up clinicians to go out into the world and do more of this. And so I'm grateful for that as well. So thank you for being a friend and thank you for coming back to the podcast and for what you do every day. So thanks.
1: Thank you. I, I really appreciate it.
0: I seriously love any chance that I can get listening to Dr. Mike. He has such a wonderful, calming presence and an ability to really just make you feel like not only is everything going to be okay, but just normalizing the things that everyday couples are going through. If this is an area of your life that you and your spouse are struggling with, I just want to encourage you that you are not alone. Shanti and Dr. Mike's book, Secrets of Sex and Marriage, is out and it is available. And I really promise you that it normalizes whatever might be going on in your relationship and in your intimacy. Um, It's a fantastic, easy read. You know, one of the things that I took away from my talk with Dr. Mike was just the reminder that if I'm ever doing something in my marriage or in my relationship with Matt, that is me managing his emotions, his behavior in such a way that makes uh, me feel better about the relationship, if I am trying to calm his emotions um, so that I feel more at peace in the relationship that that might be a level of managing him. Um, instead of allowing him to feel whatever it is that he might be feeling, um, and that's there's something different between managing our spouse and being a helpmate. And Dr. Mike did a wonderful job of explaining how we can be a wonderful gift and an incredible influence into our spouse's life. And there's a, a subtle difference between managing their behavior, managing their emotions, and being a helpmate and being a playful helpmate in their life. So when I work with couples on managing their spouse, it is a really hard behavior to break. And it's sometimes a hard behavior to identify. So it might be worth you taking a look at that in your life and relationship this week. If you need help in this area of your life, I encourage you to reach out to someone for help. There are coaches, there are also clinicians. And of course, in the area of intimacy, I highly suggest you work with someone who is a certified sex therapist. Um, it's a growing field and it's easier to find them than ever. Do a search, go to psychologytoday.com. Um, just as a reminder, the LifeGiver directory that I created full of competent clinicians um, has been acquired by Independent, um, the independent team, the nonprofit run by military spouses for wellness. You can find that directory at militarywellnessdirectory.org, where you can search for a clinician in your area that may be also provides telehealth that's culturally competent. And also um, maybe some of those are sex therapists as well. So thank you for listening. And if this was a helpful episode for you, please share this episode with someone that you know. You never know when you might be a life giver in someone else's life. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast or leave a review so others can find it as well. Were you thinking of someone else who would benefit from hearing today's episode? You can be a life giver to them by simply sharing it with an encouraging note. If you'd like to connect with me or find out more about my work, you can visit www.coryweathers.com.